I'm going to go ahead and start off with going back to the prologue of what we have been preaching about. John chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 says this, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 serves for us as a prologue for the rest of the book of John. And these verses that I just read are the two different types of people that we'll see in the whole book. The first group, group of people are those who are supposed to know him and receive him, but instead they reject Jesus. The second group are those who, who have questions and reason in their hearts, and they receive Jesus. Throughout the whole gospel, you'll see these two different categories of people, and within it, you'll see a benefit that's given to those who do receive Jesus. For it says in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now the sermon that I preached last week about John the Baptist and his witnessing of Jesus was toward the first group that we were talking about. The religious crowd who were supposed to know Jesus, who were supposed to be the residents of the day who were to proclaim the Messiah would come, but they did not know him. Neither did they recognize him. Then we see in our group today, group two, that there is a crowd that hears the message of John and sees Jesus, and they have questions within their own heart, and they seek to learn more and to receive the Messiah and believe in the Messiah's name. Between, uh, between uh, the two crowds, there is a question. The question is this. What are you looking for? These are the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. It's quite a loaded question. I think it's doing double duty here. I think it's doing something within the own narrative when John the Baptist or, or when John, John the Baptist sends his disciples and the disciples are seeking to learn more about Jesus and he, Jesus asks the question, what are you seeking for? But I think John, the writer, is doing something else with the text as well. He wants us to hear Jesus' words and he wants us as readers, as we read the book, to be asking a question to ourselves rhetorically, what are we looking for? So, for us in this room, what are we looking for? If I were to play a movie of your life in the past week, what, were the, what would the words and thoughts and actions of your movie communicate of what you are looking for? That's quite a scary thing to think about. There are many different things that we often look for today. I'm sure if we were to look at a movie of your life, we would think that you would desire to provide for your family or maybe give 
your children a better quality of life than you had, both spiritually and, and mentally and physically and emotionally. Perhaps we are, in this really cold weather, we're seeking to be comforted. For others, they desire to pursue things that make them most happy. There are a lot of different things that people pursue and seek and different goals that people have. Some people at this very moment have, are, are seeking financial freedom from debt. So others are trying to get themselves away from another type of vet, uh, debt, an emotional baggage. But some are trying to save enough money for their children and maybe even for their grandchildren. There are many different walks of life that people take and many different things that people seek for. Some people seek houses and cars and maybe even fashionable clothing. But last week, we learned that the religious leaders were searching something as well. We weren't searching for the thing that we thought they were going to be searching for. Instead of searching for the Messiah, they were, ser- they were searching for ultimately law and order, hierarchy over John the Baptist and his ministry. They didn't want his ministry to get out of hand. It was because of some of these things that Jesus couldn't reveal his glory to these people. But in this text today, we're going to learn of a second group, an unlikely crew who was able to receive and see Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't show himself and make himself known to the religious elite. But he did make himself known to lowly disciples and fishermen. Jesus shows himself and reveals his glory to ordinary people. In Jesus' ministry, Matthew 7, 7, he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find Knock at the door and he and it will be opened to you. In our passage today, we will see that Jesus' first disciples ask for, seek, and find Jesus. We see this organized in two different ways, and our outline for today is very simple. We'll see the story of Andrew and how he finds Jesus. And we'll also see in the second story, day two, the story of Philip and Nathaniel, and how they find Jesus as well. Let's go to the story of Andrew. In the story of Andrew, there's actually two disciples, but one of them is unnamed. Commentaries go back and forth, which one they, they think that other disciple is. Some think it's actually Philip in the next narrative. Others say it's actually John, the writer of the book, because we don't hear his name Uh, given until John chapter 13. And here's his way of of trying to focus not on himself, but on the narrative as he tells Andrew's story of how he finds Jesus. The narrative starts with this phrase. It's the same phrase that was given to the religious crowd. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what did the religious crowd do when they heard that proclamation? Well, the text really doesn't show us that they did really anything. But in this text today, we see that it's the same exact message that is given. Instead, it focuses not on the religious crowd, 
but on the two disciples of John the Baptist. Now, what did they do when they heard this message? Verse 37. The two disciples heard him saying this and followed Jesus. Now, this concept of following, now this concept of following Jesus, it, it wasn't the fact that the, the John, the, John the Baptist disciples were seeking to follow after someone who was more prestigious. I think they were just hearing the message of what John the Baptist was saying. They're hearing their master, their teacher, speak of these things, and they realize, you know what, for us to take this to heart, we should do what he's called us to do and to follow and behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. As the disciples followed after Jesus, he looked back at them and he asked this question, the question that is our title of our message today, what are you looking for? And they replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, or they saw him as a superior to him. Where are you staying? So in other words, the disciples, they knew that they couldn't get their answers, all, or all their questions answered all in one setting. And so they asked Jesus very politely, very respectfully, where are you staying? Because they want to spend time with Jesus. They want to learn more about what John the Baptist has taught and what Jesus is saying about himself. Jesus greets them with hospitality as we see in verse 39. He says, come and you'll see. He replied so that when they, they saw where he was staying, they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. So one one reason why the scholars think that it's John the Baptist or uh, John the, the writer of the book is because of different uh, specific phrases like this. It was four in the afternoon. No one could really know that unless you were actually there. It would kind of be like me saying, hey, I, me, uh, me, Josh, and Aaron, we, we went out to eat and uh, Aaron had this cheese dip and and Josh, he, he got uh, some uh, chicken strips from, from a restaurant, and it was about 12.15 in, in the afternoon. <laughs> so um, the only way, the most plausible uh, reason why I would know that is because I was actually there, and I knew the exact timing. Here in the Gospel of John, you'll see the sort of details like it was four in the afternoon, or this happened the next day. Now, we get into the narrative of Andrew, and in verse 40, it says this. <clears throat> Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was, um, was one of the two who heard, and heard John and followed him. He first found his brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought, him to, brought Simon to Jesus. What? What this detail does is it shows us, first and foremost, that Andrew is, is Simon's brother. So that's, that's kind of an odd detail in the story, but you could see even in church history, there's not a lot known about Andrew as there is about maybe some of the other disciples. He's just known as Peter's brother. 
Verse 41 says, what was the first action that Andrew does? It says, first, he found his brother and he told him all these things that he, he learned about Jesus. He said, we have found the Messiah and he brought him to Jesus. So it's interesting that as Andrew sees Jesus and he, and, and he tells his brother, we have found the Messiah. He could have very well said, I have found the Messiah because he's, it's only him talking to, to his brother. But he says, we are found the Messiah. I think this is because they read, these Jewish people read the scriptures in community. They read the holy scriptures and prayed for the Messiah to come. And I think in this they are calling uh, for the importance of, of reading in community. As they say, we have, we have finally found him. I think it's details like this that help us to realize that it is important for us to read here in this room the scriptures in community, especially to our own family and friends. And it also talks about the importance of having relationship with one another. Jesus established the faith of these disciples based on the relationships that were, ha- that were given to them. Some were brothers. Others were friends. Some were other co-workers in, in their profession. I think this also gives us an encouragement to us as parents, for those who are moms and dads who are out there, that, that we have a very important ministry to our children. Our relationships with them are not to be downplayed, but we are to realize that we are to love them to Christ and we are to say that we have found the Messiah. We have found the one that we are looking for. I think also, brothers and sisters in Christ, this also teaches us that we shouldn't downplay our relationships in our home groups and in our, uh, in our relationships with other friends. We should steward our relationships well. Then it goes on in verse 42. It says, When Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now, the naming of, of Peter is quite peculiar. In the Old Testament, there, there were a lot of different names that were changed. God changed the names of Abraham, uh, Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, Jacob to Israel. And so it's not a matter of Jesus giving Peter a nickname. I think the, the name that was given to him by his mother and father is, is a good, strong name. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. He is giving Peter at this moment a new name because he is calling them to a new calling and toward a new identity. If you were to read some commentaries they would tell you, they would be honest with you and be brutal about who Peter was at this time and throughout uh, Jesus' ministry. Let me just share with you a few different adjectives that these commentaries point out about who Peter was. Peter was rash, reckless, 
had a tendency to violence, impulsive, volatile, and unreliable. Not exactly the adjectives that you want your spouse to say that you are or your friends. But this is the reality of where Peter was. This is where Peter was at at the time. But at this very moment, Jesus says, Peter, I will give you a new name. And I know that this may be hard for you to understand or believe, but I'm going to use you in the kingdom. I will shape you. I will mold you. you, And by the end of this journey, you will see a night and day difference as you follow me. Your past does not have the last word on you. I will have the last word on your life. This naming of Peter is hopeful for us as well as we follow after Christ and as he has given us a new name and an identity, knowing that we have past failures and different things in our life that we're not proud of, but we must trust Jesus and believe in him that he knows what he is doing and he will perform what he's doing in our lives to the day that we see him face to face. This, is, this may feel like a, a slow process, but Christ will not let us go. Our doubts and failures will not have the last word in our lives. Jesus does. And as we follow him, and we look toward the day in which, uh, in which we will see him face to face, we can look forward to the day where he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Now can you go to the second uh, slide, the second point? And you could just put up all the different uh, subpoints. There should be seven. So moving on in our story, we look at the story of Philip and Nathaniel. Verse 43 says this, The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, this is also peculiar because in this day and age, you didn't have masters pursuing different disciples. I was reading up on some of the different customs of that day, and there was a famous rabbi named named Rabbi Hillel that came right before Jesus' time and died around the time that Jesus was born. And many people flocked, many men flocked to this person so that they could be taught by him. He would run them through a few tests and he would choose the brightest of the bunch. But Jesus chooses in a very different way. Jesus chooses simple fishermen and, and lowly disciples. He chooses this. He chooses Philip, who it says is from Bethsaida, which means the house of fishing. And the text goes on to say that he was co-workers or fishermen alongside with Andrew and Peter. And just like Andrew, uh, the first thing that he does when he first discovers Jesus, as, is he goes to the first relationship that he could think of. He thinks of his friend, Nathaniel. Verse 45 says, Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in, in the law, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. 
he states again, we in community have found the one that Moses and the prophets had spoke of. I think this is very similar to when Jesus in his post-resurrection in Luke 24, as the disciples are, are grieving that, that Jesus died, Jesus meets them on the road to Emmaus and he teaches them all these things uh, beginning with Moses and, to all, and all the prophets, the things concerning himself. And here in our text today, we see that Philip is doing something very similar where he's speaking the good news by, by going back to Moses and to the prophets. Verse 46, what was Nathanael's reply? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, I can point out to you that Nazareth was a small, insignificant town. Commentaries say that there was a rivalry between Nazareth and the town that he was from. But I think it best for us to understand this, that Nathaniel is reading scripture. And as he's reading scripture, in his brain, it can't compute. I've, I haven't read anything about Nazareth. So he asks him, can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip's not as astute as Nathaniel is and, and isn't prepared to re- respond to, to this, this, but he knows what to do. He doesn't know the answer, but he says, come and I will bring you to Jesus and he will tell you these things. Come and see. He did exactly what Jesus did. Isn't that the pattern of discipleship where we receive something and then in return we start doing the thing that we have been receiving and we have been being ministered by. Jesus followed after him and he said, come and see to the disciples prior. And now Philip, he's following in this pattern and he's calling, um, he he sees and proclaims and, and witnesses of Jesus and he calls his friend to come and see. Verse 47, then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him And said to him, Here truly is an Israelite whom there is no deceit. I think it would be better translated, Here is a true or genuine Israelite of whom there is no guile or deceit. Nathaniel was taken aback by what Jesus says to him. He's thinking to himself, How do you know me? Nathaniel is meeting Jesus for the first time, and Jesus is making truth claims and true statements about his own character. How does Jesus know about Nathanael? John points out that Jesus sees and has a vision like no other person. This word made flesh, this eternal God-man has a vision like no other person can have. He sees in supernatural ways that sees the thoughts and intentions and the innermost being of Nathaniel. He sees his character. And because of all this, Nathaniel asks, how do you know me? Or I think it better translated, from where do you know me? Jesus responds in verse 48, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. This fig tree analogy, um, as I was trying to read the commentaries and trying to understand what the significance of this, 
The fig tree analogy could be uh, an anal- or, uh, just uh, a way to talk about a person's home, their, child, their childhood. It could also uh, mean um, a place of prayer and meditation. And the text doesn't make it clear uh, of what exactly he is getting to. It keeps it ambiguous. But I think what we're supposed to gather as we're reading this is that Nathaniel gets the point. <laughs> Whatever Jesus said in that insider language to him, he starts proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God and the King of Israel. Being the Son of God, it meant that Nathaniel knew that Jesus was of the same essence or the very nature of God himself because only God can know these things. Whatever happened to Nathaniel that day, we know that it is a holy moment. It is the type of holy moment that we see in the, in the Psalms. Psalm 139, when the psalmist realizes the omniscience of God and he, he prays and, and he adores God saying, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit and when I stand, you stand, you understand my thoughts from afar. You observe my traveling and my resting You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is spoken out of my tongue, you know it all together, Lord. This is what Jesus does at this very moment. This is our God. This is the King of Israel. We must come and see this. Just like in the prologue says, Nathaniel at this very moment observes his glory, the glory of of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now Jesus responds in verse 50. Jesus responds and says, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under a fig tree? You will see greater things than these. Jesus answers him and, and, and he's not rebuking him, but he's trying to build on what, he, what has been said and what has been revealed already. You believe because I told you these things, but I will tell you greater things than these. Then he appeals to uh, Genesis chapter 28, the story of Jacob. In this story, Jacob is running away from his family because he has cheated his brother, brother both out of his birthright and out of a patriarchal blessing. And Esau, his older brother, is livid at him and wants to kill him. So Jacob, he runs for his dear life into the wilderness to seek refuge. He finds himself in a lonely and dark desert. He is exhausted, and the only thing that he could find to sleep on is a rock as his pillow. He must have been super exhausted to sleep in a rock. But he was able to dream a dream that night. And God was able to share with him a vision of these angels. As he slept, he he was dreaming of this vision of these angels ascending and descending from heaven. And and one of the meanings of, of this vision is that God was trying to teach him that 
God would still continue to use Jacob even though he has been deceitful, even though that he, he, he has been unfaithful. God will be true to his covenant. Jacob wakes up from the stream. He is astounded by what he sees. And he says, surely God must have been in this place. And he calls that very place Bethel, which means the house of God or the place in which God dwells. Because of this vision that he sees and the angels going up and down on this ladder, he, was, he is reminded of the fact that heaven's blessing will come through his line and it will reside on earth through this ladder and will be given, this blessing will be given to the ends of the earth. Interestingly, Jesus, when he recounts this to uh, Nathaniel, he leaves out a pretty important element of the story in John 28. He doesn't talk about a ladder at all. What does he, he put? Or what, what does he say instead? In verse 51, it says, Truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending, not on a ladder, but on the Son of Man. You see, in Jesus' rendition of Jacob's story, as he retells the story of Jacob's ladder, there is no need for a ladder because Jesus is now the ladder. Jesus becomes the Jacob's ladder that, that brings and ascends and descends the heavenly blessings of God. And these five disciples... Andrew and John and Philip and Nathaniel. These disciples see Jesus in his glory. They will follow Jesus and on, in his ministry they will see him do many great things. As we read throughout the book of uh, John, you see different signs and wonders that Jesus does. And they're amazing. <laughs> And it would be as if the heavens were opened and is coming down through the blessing that's given through this Son of Man, Jesus Christ. But one day, eventually, Jesus' disciples will see his glory in a way that they never thought or expected. They would see the glory of the Lord and heaven's gates open on, on Mount Calvary when they see Jesus that bled and died for, died for them on the cross. And in the same way that Jacob saw this vision in which the ladder was the bridge to this heavenly blessing, they see Jesus on the cross as the bridge to everyone in the world to this heavenly blessing of eternal life in the Son. Some rejected Christ and didn't receive this blessing. Yet there were still others who received Jesus and saw the glory. So I want to go back to the question that Jesus asked again in the beginning of this narrative. What 
are you seeking? When I, um, I have a friend that is an artist, and he didn't do it professionally, but when he retired, he was able to do more, more work on his art, and he gave me this painting one day. And it was, it was really weird. It was an abstract, and it kind of looked like a cross, but I, I didn't want to assume, so I asked him, hey, brother, what, what am I supposed to be seeing in this picture? And he said, it's a picture of Jesus. Honestly, when I, when I took it, I just said thank you, and I thought to myself, man, a fifth grader could have done this. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> I, I put it on, on the shelf, and I, I appreciated the gift that was given to me. And as I was looking at the picture one day in, in my study, I was looking at this blob, and then all of a sudden, this face just like came out at me and was looking at me. It, it was actually, uh, it was, I could see the face of Jesus in this picture. <laughs> and every time that I see that blob now, I don't see this weird looking cross thing. I see the face of Christ looking at me. And in the same way that I, I could look at this picture and, and look at it and not even realize that Jesus is staring at me in, in, in the face, I think in, this, in the same way, Jesus is asking us, what are we looking for? And I hope that you would see that in this text, in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51, that maybe the thing that you are looking for is staring at you in this text. It's Jesus of Nazareth. It is Jesus who is King and the Son of God. And we must come and see his glory. Let's pray together. Father, there are many things that we are looking for in this life. Yet, God, we just ask, Lord, that you would help us to see what you want us to see, ask the questions you want us to ask, pursue the things that you want us to pursue, realizing that you are gazing at us and you are desiring us to come and see and follow you throughout the days of our lives. Jesus, thank you for this vision that we see in this text. Thank you for bringing heaven's blessing down to us through the cross and through your Son, Jesus Christ. All these things we ask, these things, and are thankful for. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.